So when I talk about the minimum lovable product, it's really understanding as a startup, you go through these iterative cycles when you're trying to enter into any market. So even in the home market, right, you're only starting at that baseline. So what are the key key experiences that a user needs to have to really have that hook and to have them convert? Welcome to the International Expansion Podcast. My name is Ramsey Pryor, and I spent the past five years taking one of Silicon Valley's fastest growing startups into new markets all around the world as head of international expansion and sales. Tech companies are able to expand overseas faster than ever before, but there's quite a lot that goes into getting it right. And each new market has its own unique and fascinating set of quirks and challenges. The best way to prepare is to learn from people who have been there before. So I started this podcast to gather the best practices from tech's most admired startups. We cover their successes and the things they got right, as well as their mistakes and learnings, all so that you can benefit from their hindsight as you take your company global. Thanks for listening. And if you or your company is looking for guidance on your expansion journey, or if you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please visit portofentrypartners.com and send us a note. Welcome to another episode of the International Expansion Podcast. Today, I'm really happy to have Robin Larson as my guest. And Robin is an international growth and marketing UX leader at Shopify. She's a front-end developer, entrepreneur, and speaker, and advises numerous startups across multiple industries and frequently mentors women in tech and STEM. In addition to the work she does at Shopify, she teaches zero-to-launch workshops for entrepreneurs through Embark. She's also a founder of the International Mastermind Network, which is where I got to know Robin. Robin, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me, Ramsey. I'm excited. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I know you've had you've been busy, so I've been patiently trying to wait to get on your calendar. And yeah, with the presentation that you gave us last time, I took a lot of notes. And so uh, I have lots of stuff I want to ask you about today. Usually on this podcast, for people that listen, we talk about a lot of different aspects of taking technology into new markets, whether it's figuring out where to go or when, or how to prioritize, all those things. But one of the things that is the hardest, I think, for people to feel comfort around is how your product should actually adapt to please people in different places. And I know that is absolutely your expertise So I'm really excited to get deep into that. But before we get into the nitty gritty, I wanted to start by learning more about you and how you came to be a globetrotting adrenaline junkie. I'm really interested in knowing where did you grow up and where did the interest in technology and all things international start for you? Mm -hmm. So I I grew up on a really small acreage near uh, a small town in rural Alberta in Canada. We were always playing on dirt bikes and other ATVs. And my love for sports really came from being a competitive figure skater. Prior to that, I had never been outside of Alberta or British Columbia. And while I was attending post-secondary, I discovered snowboarding and surfing and traveling. And that's really when I kind of got the travel bug. So following graduation, I wasn't really super engaged in in the traditional engineering industry. And this eventually led to the world of startups and technology and software. And that created the the desire to have work be independent of my location 
and really gave me the realization that we could redefine the rules of the game that we kind of call life. And so in 2010, the tech community in Edmonton was incredibly small. And eventually I realized that if I really wanted to change careers, I was going to have to, and make it in the tech industry, I was going to have to move to a larger urban center. So it was either going to be Vancouver or Toronto. And a couple of months later, I ended up packing two suitcases and moving to Toronto so I could MC at a tech conference called North by Northeast Interactive. And outside of that, I had no plan. I had no job. I had no place to live. It was it was really spur of the moment kind of thing. And everything just started falling into place. It was really, it was life altering for me. That sounds really exciting. Curious at the time, was there anything at all going on in Edmonton or was it, you really had to either be in Toronto or Vancouver or somewhere else? The the startup community and overall had really just started. So the, oh my goodness, what's Eric Reese's book? Startup. The Lean Startup? The Lean Startup. So the Lean Startup was just released around that time and it was a huge influence. And so as well, there was a new community that was just starting called Startup Edmonton. And so that really is where I was introduced to a lot of this stuff. And they had folks that were originally from Edmonton that came up from San Francisco to speak to us. So we had folks from Airbnb that were talking to us and Nexopia. I don't know if you remember them. <laughs> they were one of the very first social networks in the world. So we had founders from all over these different technology companies come and speak to us for this one day workshop. And it was it was life altering for me to kind of get that exposure. Very cool. And when did you start thinking about localization, focusing specifically within international or localizing specifically? So I started my international journey at Shopify, and that was back in 2017. Localization became pretty prominent for us in early 2018. And that's really where I started to focus more on some of our marketing collateral and localizing that experience. Our initial launch was into Singapore, Japan, France, and Germany. And getting exposure to Japan and watching that grow and happen was just such an unreal um, experience and just completely redefined localization and just going, going after that market and specializing in that niche. Wow. Okay. So this is uh, the first big area to dive into, but you mentioned that you you guys initially went into Singapore, Japan, Germany, and one other place. That's France. a lot in France. So you covered some yeah. of the biggest, toughest uh, markets that typically people talk about being challenging for localization. You decided to do all those at once, especially Japan, Germany, and France. Those are pretty challenging. Can you talk a little bit about how did you guys decide to do that all at once? I mean, I can't speak too much to the the country prioritization that we had done. There's a lot of data that went into it from market analysis to organic growth that we were seeing in markets. In terms of when I think about how winning a market can be challenging. So if you talk about Asia, if you can win Japan, you can win most of the market. If you can win Singapore, you can win most of the market. And we already had a substantial amount of growth within Singapore already. And so that was a really good fit for us to start going into those markets. And then in addition to that, when you think about Europe, Germany is usually the toughest market to get into. So 
if you can solve for Germany, you can solve for most other countries in Europe. So it really is the defining um, which markets you want to go in and why you want to go into those markets. Japan is not an easy market to get into, right? I don't know if I would recommend that for the first entry point, unless you really want to get into Asia and dedicate the time and the resources to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. certainly Shopify had plenty of momentum and probably explains the confidence of going after all those markets simultaneously. A lot of people will leave some of those towards the later part of the expansion uh, timeline when they've got the momentum and kind of the tailwind going. But it makes sense given how fast Shopify was growing that they would want to make those early investments in the bigger, even though a little more difficult markets. Do you happen to know how much time it took to prepare, say, the localization work that went into launching in Japan or Germany? So localization happens on a varying degree, right? There's never that one point where you decide that you're done. And so in terms of translations, we went from zero to six months. So we had English-only product. Um, We had already launched in the UK and Australia and New Zealand and a few other English-speaking markets that were global. So we had a little bit of experience in that area. But in terms of translating the product, it was a completely different, completely different experience. Yeah, and you told me so many, or you told the group a lot of the interesting stuff that you did specifically for some of those markets. And I really want to get into those in a second, but I'm going to hold that off for just a second, just so that we have a little more background on you. So can you talk a little bit about exactly what your current role is at Shopify? And just for context, can you give everybody a sense of where Shopify's international presence is today and the state of localization? Mm -hmm. So Shopify currently operates in 175 countries and We offer the product in 21 languages. In terms of our international journey, we're about four years in, but we still have a really long ways to go around localization. And again, it is that varying degree of what you decide that you want to be doing for localization, right? Like you can can go all out and fully localize a product, but at some point in time, is that investment worth the the value that's coming back. And so being able to fine tune and decide where that line is for your business is really a delicate dance. Today, I focus on all things related to international marketing UX as it relates for our .com properties. This means internationalizing and localizing our .com website. But for my like day-to-day, it varies. And that's a huge presence that you guys have rolled out over four years Are you able to talk a little bit about how the international team, if you even have such a thing, is structured just within the company or how has that evolved? Did you start with a few people that focused specifically on a few languages? Can you talk a little bit about how that started and where it is today? So when, when we started the international product line, it really acted a lot like a a pirate ship within a giant company. Like we were a very small startup in this ecosystem that is Shopify. And so it gave us a lot of room to test and fail because we were allowed to move freely throughout the, the business and find ways to kind of make the needle move the most. And that really, I think, was a huge pillar in some of the foundational work that we were doing. We learned a lot of lessons through that experience. Today, we have 
teams that are dedicated towards tooling, so international tooling, in particular around translation and localization. So we have a substantial amount of tooling that really drives our international growth. And then we have the content localization team. And then we also have some of our in-region um, and market teams. And then we have teams that focus on the global experience. So it really layers up into whatever that localization needs to look like within each market. Okay. And I, if you can't answer this, I understand. But are you free to say about what size the team is today? Just so that people can benchmark, okay, if we get to... 21 languages and we're in 175 countries, we should expect that we'll need approximately X number of people. I mean, Shopify is 10,000 people today. So <laughs> like when we when we started the when we started the international team, it was about 5,000 people. But I'm not sure if that's really an accurate reflection. So our team grew to, I think it was about 200 people that were focused on the internet side of things. And so it it really, it grew a lot in the span of three or four years. That's incredible. That's the biggest team that I think I've interviewed anyone um, about in terms of their international focus team. And so just zooming out for a minute, because I think within our group and some of the conversations that can get pretty specific and wonky, you know, people that really understand this stuff, but assume for the minute that I'm a tech founder and I have a really hot technology that is absolutely going to be global. It's just a question of how soon. But I haven't started leaving, you know, I haven't left my home market yet. From an international localization UX perspective, can you dumb things down to you know, a really basic level and just tell me if you were giving me advice as a founder, what I should need to what I what I would need to know or what it's going to take to do a good job of taking my technology and making it really relevant and accepted in different parts of the world? So, I mean, in terms of taking taking a product to new markets, it's really understanding where your user base is at and what the data says, right? That organic growth is going to give you some key signals that you need in order to understand if your company is even ready to be going global. And first and foremost, you really need support across your senior leadership team that this is going to happen. Uh, if you don't have widespread support in that way, then it's very unlikely that your team will succeed, right? And setting your teams up for success is the most important aspect of that so that they can feel supported um, as they move forward through these like really challenging experiences that they're going to face. And so this means baking international into your investment plans and the roadmaps across all teams because it really is an integrated approach. It's a lot like accessibility in the sense where you need to bake it in from the very beginning. So one of the things that I always talk about is international is the new mobile first. So when we mm -hmm. saw that big shift in the industry from a desktop only to a mobile specific, right? Everybody has a pocket supercomputer, pocket size supercomputer. And so globalizing a product is really a long-term investment. And so with that understanding that it's no small task and it requires dedication on all levels, a second to that, understanding what your minimum lovable product will be when you enter a new market and realizing you're starting from scratch with product market fit in most of these places, right? So realizing where that's at and setting those expectations with your teams and with the leadership across all of the other teams in the organization and then iterating the product from there. So understanding how your users drive the product feature demand 
And the first experience is not going to be that good, really. Once you translate a product, you're not done. You feel like you're done, but you're not. But setting your teams up for success will really benefit the company overall. The third to that is a lot about dev acceleration and tooling. So that was probably one of the key pillars for us. When we talked to other companies that were going global, that was a fundamental component of driving international foundation for any company. And so how can you automate the mundane and build tools that will extract strings and provide translations through Teams existing, like a Teams existing workflow? So building a developer-friendly or a product manager-friendly translation tooling workflow is really what made it easy for our teams to expand into so many languages so quickly. So we did six languages in six months. That is, in my opinion, unbelievable, considering (laughs) that we had a code base that was 12 years old, right? There's so much. That's fantastic. Um, And so it's... It's likely by the time you decide to go international, like there is still, there already is organic growth within those markets. And so with that being said, once you get a translated product out and you're ready to do some beta testing, talk to the users that are already in those markets and ask them if they're willing to test and give feedback about the translations that are coming back because they really want to be using a product in their native language most of the time. And so when when we were going through those initial iterations, we did a lot of that testing. And I think that was a key, a key success metric for us. All right. So lots of meaty topics within what you just mentioned. So I want to go a little bit deeper into three things that you brought up. Um, you talked about the minimum lovable product tooling and then feedback. So I, if you don't mind, I'd like to get a little deeper on those. So let's start with the minimum lovable product. You have a great product in a UX, let's say, in your home market, and you go to a place like Japan, let's just say, and you want to figure out, is my product also lovable there? How do you get feedback? How, how, what's the process for understanding when it's good enough or you've made the right tweaks so that it's truly loved? So Japan is a really unique market where no individual wants to be the first person that brings a product to their manager and says, hey, we should try out this thing. It's very unlikely. So we don't, we didn't at the time have the brand clout in the Japanese market. So we didn't see a really high conversion rate right away. It took a lot of time and a lot of energy to dedicate into that. And so when I talk about the minimum lovable product, it's really understanding as a startup, you go through these iterative cycles when you're trying to enter into any market. So even in the home market, right, you're only starting at that baseline. So what are the key key experiences that a user needs to have to really have that hook and to have them convert, right? So for us, it was understanding what does a business owner need to be able to operate a Shopify store in that local market and then working backwards from that, right? Because we're not going to be able to launch all the fanciest features right away. We have this really exceptional product where anybody can run their business with a really small team. And so that Understanding how that's unlocked in new markets is really what drove part of our product roadmap. I love that. Did you find that the minimum livable product in Japan was very different from what was minimally lovable in a place like Germany? No, not particularly, right? Like we, it's like when you're building a new business anywhere, or a new startup, it's what are the, the baseline user needs are almost always the same when you're mm-hmm. building a business. And so 
from that perspective, I mean, there was different things, right? Like we had VAT in Germany and that was a huge lift for us. And that was completely unrelated to some of the other markets. And so when we solved that, we solved a lot of headaches for our users there. But I think really, really going back to the fundamentals of what the product was when you started and when you started to see that traction and going back there and using really similar marketing techniques and tactics and using really similar experiences as you tried to go and expand into these new markets and testing it, right? You're not going to, you're not going to win the first time. You're going to fail, but knowing that you're going to fail is okay. This episode is brought to you by Globalization Partners. Many people assume that in order to enter a new country, you have to set up a new entity for your company, which can mean engaging in months of filings, years of investment obligations, legal fees, and a boatload of aspirin for all those headaches. That's a really heavy burden, especially if you're only hiring a few employees or if you're still testing a particular market. Globalization Partners invented a better way of hiring talent in other countries in 2012 that allows you to focus on hiring the talent you need and growing your company while they take care of the employment details. They provide locally compliant employee contracts, manage payroll, pensions, benefits, and a lot more as part of the package. And they cover 187 countries and 180 currencies. They offer all of this through their proprietary technology platform and provide experts you can call on when tricky situations come up anywhere in the world. And take it from me, these situations do come up frequently. And when they do, you want the most experienced people and the best technology behind you. For more information, visit globalizationpartners.com and choose the country you'd like to learn more about. You mentioned tooling, and I know that there is a lot out there in the market that companies get hit on all the time. And so when you're considering the technologies that you might want to outsource or use a best-in-class third-party provider of versus the things that you want to build internally, I'd love to get your thoughts on what are the things that you think are truly best if you get whatever's out there um, from a third-party vendor um, versus what are the types of things that you should definitely build the competency or the technology in-house? So, I mean, in terms of language, right, we have a, we use something called a translation platform, but that's an in-house tool that syncs up with another, like a language service provider API. So it doesn't matter what the, what the experience or the language service provider is, our experience on the developer side is always going to be consistent and it's always going to be the same. And it continues to evolve as we evolve our own practice around translation. So that was probably a really key aspect on it. The secondary tool that we developed and used was something called pseudo localization. And that was really helpful when we were starting to extract strings out of our code base so that our developers, our designers, our product managers could really see where we were missing the translations or where the strings weren't extracted or understanding where we needed to remove concatenation. So, sorry, concatenation being uh, like having a number or something in the middle of a sentence that would change. But when you're reading when you're reading numbers in different languages, sometimes the numbers at the front versus at the end, right? And so understanding how that whole experience really ties into it. Maybe we take a step back and we say, what are the pieces that you're going to need? And you mentioned um, an LSP. So maybe you can define what that is and kind of like what are the components that anyone's going to need? And of those, what are the things that are safe to outsource and what are the parts that you're going to need to build? 
some of the things that we needed to outsource. So language LSP is language service provider. It's the tool that you use that will provide the translation. So using Google Translate is not good enough. So don't do that. <laughs> In terms of outsourcing, we really needed help to understand what those cultural annoyances were going to be from a user experience perspective. Like we we learned so much working with our in-market agencies in Japan and even in Germany we did user experience audits across all of our .com properties to ensure that we were giving them the most optimal experience and it really challenged a lot of assumptions within our teams and it was difficult at first but now we know a lot more about it and we still continue to go back to the data and go back to the user research right it's really what are your users telling you that you need to understand and know and recognize that you have so many assumptions going into this place that you like you can't use. You have to you have to question your own assumptions in every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And that gets me to the third big topic that you mentioned, which was feedback. And I know it's important, but maybe I'd love to learn from you. What have you what did you learn as you went uh, in terms of the best way to actually get that feedback? Um, was it just explicitly asking people? And if so, did you do it via forms? Did you have kind of UX sessions or kind of real-time sessions where you got feedback? What do you think the best ways to get that kind of real and honest and transparent feedback from your user bases? I mean, I will say that most users don't know what they need. They'll tell you what they need, but they don't actually know what they need most of the time. So it's hard to parse through that data. So understanding, really, really understanding like where doing focus groups and doing user experience audits and going into the data. So we asked for feedback a lot of the time in our admin product. So we, we asked our users for translation feedback uh, and if they were willing to give it to us. And we offered them the opportunity to try the product in their local language. And if they switched back over to English from their native language, then that was a signal to us that, okay, well, there's something missing here. Maybe we should reach out to them and talk to them. We did a lot of focus group work. Uh, and we still use that to this day. Like We still question all of our assumptions as we're entering into new markets. That's good. And does any particular assumption come to mind that either before you started questioning your own assumptions, you learned the hard way that something that you assumed was wrong, or maybe just from other experiences that other people have shared, you know, what are some of the assumptions that you might make that would be horribly wrong? So, I mean, you can, you can never assume that you know everything. Because even by the time you think that you know a lot, you don't really know that much. I'm still learning so much every single time I go into a new, a new localization project uh, in the way that we speak about things. So, for example, in, in North America, we love this very airy, fairy storyline and we want to be sold this elegant story. But in Germany, they want all the facts right up front. And that, that, that's a hard thing to convince somebody that like team members that know nothing about cultural differences really in that way. I remember you, you showed us one of the home pages of a Japanese website yeah. and how long it was. And you know, I think the design principles that I was hearing a lot here is your homepage should answer some very basic questions. And then from there, leave the detail for subsequent clicks and all of that. But you showed me a particular site where 
don't even know how long you had to scroll for, but there was a whole song behind it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So that was a, so I'm talking about a Rakuten example. So Rakuten uh, started in Japan and think of it as the Amazon for Japan, but they literally have everything that you could possibly manage on the first page. And so Japanese users by design expect you to surface all the most critical information on that first page because they're very unlikely to click into other pages. And if they do have to click into other pages, they feel like you're hiding information from them. And so it creates this weird mistrust. Mm. Some of the other things that are incredibly important around developing that, that user trust is like really the social proof. Social proof and testimonials are huge, right? It just make or, it will make or break a brand as they start to enter into new markets. So that was a big thing for us. But uh, one of the things that was really surprising was we, so we do a global template approach with a lot of our .com properties where we have localized components in there. So we'll have hero images that will feature local merchants and we have local brands that we feature and local testimonials. And we try to do that with every single marketing site that we go into a new market with. We did a fully Jap, I'm going to call it a Japanified version of our .com, but we actually found that there wasn't an increase in performance Mm -hmm. in our conversion rate. And so that was a really interesting that was a really interesting thing to see. I would love to test it again and see if there's any differences now that we have more traction in the market. But it, we we ended up reverting back to the the localized global template model for our particular site. So oh, maybe that's reassuring to some people out there that know that there's a lot of maybe cultural preferences, but it, it's I think it's worth proving out whether performance actually follows or not. Not sure where what to conclude from that, except, like you said, uh, question all of your assumptions, even if mm-hmm. your assumption is is one that is in the spirit of localizing or trying to make things even more the way people are used to seeing them. Robin, there's so many different languages and locations to that you might consider for localizing. I'm curious to know how would you what advice would you give in terms of how to choose which markets to start localizing for. You know, you mentioned that you guys went into the biggest and hardest all together in one group, and maybe in hindsight, that wouldn't be possible for smaller companies or maybe the ones that were not as confident that things were going to work out. You know, what what advice would you give in terms of where to start um, and what should be top of the list for localization? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the short answer is that it it varies from product to product, really. Darn it. So like what, again, it goes back to the data, like what does the organic growth data say? And then starting from there and inter- and then integrating the market data accordingly. A lot of American-based companies will start expanding globally into some of the English speaking markets first. So like the UK or Australia. So if you're coming from the States and then going into Canada and then bake in translations on top of that, or as they start to expand into other countries, If I could do it again, I would love to test the theory about starting in the States, but launching in like a Spanish language first, because Spanish is so popular in in the United States or French in Canada, and then building up your teams and resources around that. That's an interesting idea. I saw um, an infographic the other day that showed the world's top 30 languages or something like that relative to each other, but also where it's actually being been spoken. 
And it is surprising to see, you know, of the big languages, how much of that is actually being spoken outside of the country where it came from. So that's, a good, that's an interesting point. I guess there's also, as you get into a language like Spanish, you would have to make the decision, how many different flavors of Spanish or do you want to support? Um, curious to know any best practices or thoughts. Um, even the English language, of course, could be localized and can and should be localized probably in the fullest of time to cover some of the you know, the differences between the way people speak, um, spell, everything, date formats. Any thoughts on that in terms of maybe as you go after your first set of markets, which ones to use as your benchmarks? I mean, we we started with uh, French, German, Japanese, Brazilian, Portuguese, and Spanish. And so I, I think that those are really good baseline ones. So Arabic is one of the most popular languages in the world, but solving the the right to left language in software is really challenging. The bidirectional text. Yeah, right. And then and then solving for character-based languages like Japanese, Chinese, or Korean is also incredibly challenging. So I would actually I would remove Japanese from that initial launch and really go after um, some of the other Latin the other Latin-based uh, languages, that that really, I think, would give you a lot of insight into the, the markets that would maybe resonate the most. But again, it's about going back to the data, right? Mm-hmm. Every com- company is going to have to figure out which markets are the most important to them. And uh, of course, that would factor into your rankings and the markets that you choose to localize for first. But I'd like to get your thoughts just to give besides uh, Shopify, some examples of other companies that you as an expert in this field feel are doing a really good job of localizing? Who comes to mind for you? I mean, Rakuten, I think, has done an amazing job. They did the the inverse, right? They started in Japan and they've gone global. And I think they've done such an, an exceptional job of expanding globally into new markets. I'm not sure if it's easier or harder to expand into markets in the reverse of what my experience has been within North America. Mm-hmm. I think Netflix does a really great job with their localization practice. So we we had, I can't remember her name, we had the the head of globalization come and speak to us about what they were doing in India and other markets. And so it was actually one of the, the places that we took inspiration from around the pseudo-localization practice. Uh, and that was huge. And then Yahoo, I think, has done a really good job with their with their J- Japanese-focused product or like their marketing versus Canada or the U.S. And so it's really understanding where that product market fit is. If you look at like retail experiences or places like McDonald's, they do a really good job of localization, right? I can get this, this random curry sauce in Singapore that I can't get in any other place, or I can get a, a matcha green tea McFlurry in in China, right? It like there's so many different aspects of localization. And then I was in Shanghai a couple of years ago and Starbucks had these little like Chinese dumpling things as a part of their their market. I, they didn't taste very good in my opinion, but I, I mean, they, they're attempting at their version of localization. So I think it really depends. It varies the degrees of localization of what it is that you want to be doing. Yeah. In some ways we're lucky we're in software and we don't have uh foods to, to localize and flavors and all of that that goes with it. But Can no, those are all really imagine? good examples. <laughs> yeah, it would be fun. Sometimes I wish some of those uh, international versions of, of foods were available everywhere. But 
Um, no, you mentioned uh, Rakuten, Netflix, and Yahoo. They're all, you know, those resonate with me as well. Rakuten uh, has a huge presence here in California, and I think that it's felt, it's, I hear the radio ads all the time, and you're right, it does feel not like a Japanese company, but a Japanese brand, uh, but they're doing things locally really well. And Yahoo is, you know, the, Japan is famous for, if you get it right, there's a, you know, you have a long and loyal business uh, that yes. you can build in, in Japan, and Yahoo is still king of the heap over there, despite, you know, other search and properties and, and brands having taken over other markets. When you think about the markets that you've taken Shopify into, do you think of any mistakes that, looking back on it, if you had done things differently or if you were doing things again, you could save other people a lot of time and heartache um, in hindsight? Oh, man. That's such a tough question to answer because there's so many things that I would do differently and there's so many things that I wouldn't and would have still made those mistakes, right? Like sometimes you just need to go through the the process of making mistakes and getting to that next step. I think really, I think some of the things that we did well were focusing on the product first and then the marketing later. That's hindsight 2020 for sure. And then trusting and equipping um, your teams in market uh, with the right resources, I feel like we could have gotten to a much better place in a much less painful way if we had equipped our teams accordingly and just really gave them the the support we needed. I think some of the things that we did really, really well were around the culture aspect of the business and bringing the team together and really building those strong relationships across the across the team. So I mean offsites aren't that popular right now with COVID, but mm-hmm. once we get back to that place again, I, I think that was a really key driver for us and our success. And you mentioned pseudo localization and that was one of the things I took notes on from your presentation that I saw you do a couple of weeks ago. Can you talk more about what that is and what it can do for a company that's in the midst of trying to roll out in a bunch of different places? Mm-hmm. So pseudo localization is a it's a software texting practice that expands text to replicate different languages. The the end result can be really surprising, but it gives us the opportunity to it gave us the opportunity to distinguish between hard coded and dynamic content when we were going through our translation process and our string extraction process. But even now, it allows us to visually test our UI if we don't have the language provided. So when we first started, it would take one to two weeks to get translations back. Now it's about like less than 12 hours to get anything back from the, um, from the language memory that we have within our like translation database. So I, I think I think it's a really good practice to get into, and it brings a lot of it. It, it really brings the practice along from UX and UI per, per point of view. Yeah, and I, I one of the eye-opening things. I'm not an expert in this, but when we started building out Japanese versions, or I'm trying to remember which language we were testing with, but we knew, of course, that you can't hard code text. So we we got to the point where it's okay, you have to take all of the text that exists in your interface or on your website, put it into a database, and then you know, you're going to have people that are translating that, putting strings and translations back into the database, and then your interface needs to call those things and present them. And the thing that I didn't realize is that even if you do a perfect job of translating 
every single word that's in there, the way it shows up and displays is not going to be what you expected. And you know, I think one of the examples you gave was German being a really long language in terms of the number of characters per word, et cetera. And that's one of the things that just broke. You know, it put all the right words in, but we didn't have enough space to even display that many characters. And yeah, that's just one of those things that probably everybody will find out the hard way if they weren't advised ahead of time. And pseudo-localization, I think, is one of those things that could save that pain and time by using some of the more extreme version or languages out there to make sure that, hey, no matter what language we're in, we're probably going to be okay because we tested it in you know X and Y. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on you know which languages you should use to, you know, if you're okay in those languages, you're probably going to be okay in the rest? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I always like to test our product in Japanese or German in addition to English because I find that like German expands so far that it'll completely break any wrapping tendencies or it'll break the grid. And then Japanese because it tends to break a lot of the core functionality of uh, a website. So like UTF-8 um, encoding issues generally come up for that. And so really being able to understand what that looks like. And with Japanese in particular, so we have a, a custom typeface called Shopify Sans that we use, and we actually had to start using a different typeface for Japanese because there was characters missing in the typeface itself. And so words would just not make sense to our Japanese users. Wow. And how, how do you find out about something like that? Was that feedback that came... Um, from someone, one of your customers, or was it a Japanese team member that said, "Hey, there's some missing <laughs> characters here." Like, how how far along were you before you find out that kind of problem exists? I mean, it's it's usually from our in market teams, right? We we partner with our in market teams with any project that we're looking to launch a new la- new language, right? And so we have we have the experts in market that are reading through the content and saying, "Hey." this doesn't make sense because of this reason. This looks like a bug. We should probably fix it before we go live. And so, I I mean, a lot of the time it was, it was trial and error, right? There was a lot of stuff that we broke. I mean, we can, we can lead into maybe the, that next part of like some of the cultural considerations of it, right? Like we, we had our, we had our Japanese users hacking our, hacking our contact forms because you would never ask for the first name prior to the last name in Japan. It's really disrespectful. We had no idea, right? And it wasn't until we had our in-market teams there that were experts and said, hey, <laughs> or um, or like some of the eye-opening experiences that we have is in Japan, you, you enter a, a postal code or a zip code, and then everything auto-populates from there. That is a default user experience in Japan. And so we really had to learn. It's so beautiful, right? Who doesn't love a, an autocomplete experience like that? But that just wasn't something that we knew about when we were starting. And so it's it's really trial by error. Yeah, and hopefully those types of, when you do find that the way that someone does it in you know, a different place, like what you mentioned, putting in the postal code first and suddenly all the other information is there, hopefully people like you and you know companies like Shopify can find a way to you know sort of get the rest of us on board to those things because that makes so much more sense. I hate when I'm filling out a form and I've given you you know my street number, my address and the last thing you're asking for is my postal code. I mean that should have come <laughs> and the city. Um, it just seems like so much extra work that isn't really needed. Do any other best practices come to mind of the way that um, you know other countries 
treat information or form filling or anything like that that mm-hmm. we can learn from, or vice versa, things that uh, if we did it the way that we do it in North America, it would be very disrespectful or wrong elsewhere. I mean, if you if you look at places like China, right, red is the like a really positive sign in their world, whereas green is a negative sign. So, I mean, we have green all over our website, so I don't really know how that we're still working on that. But I mean, those are those are some of the things. And then like there's uh, another good example in China is a tool called WeChat. And it really is a it's a super app. We don't we don't have any of those kinds of experiences in North America, really. Or QR codes are really popular in Asia everywhere. And we really don't use them properly in in North America yet. Like you see Alipay popping up in different places now at uh, different stores and like Google Pay and stuff. But we really we haven't even scratched the surface of the functionality that's there it's it's a dog eat dog world there. So if you're not if you don't have a really exceptional product, you're going to fail. Someone else is going to copy it and make it ten times better anyways in a much shorter time frame. Some of the other things that I think about from like a user experience will be like not embedding text into images because localization practices can be really challenging and time consuming for everybody on the team in that way. And it really it it kills site performance as well if you have to load in 21 different versions of your of that one image right right some of the some of the things that we've done to overcome that are having what we call ui illustrations in our marketing collateral so they're lower fidelity versions of the product the admin product but it's in it's built in html and css so it scales with the language it can localize with the, the country or the region. And that is a really powerful tool that we've used to scale. Can't take all the credit though. I we, we found inspiration from Slack in that and really just that evolution. And we tried many, many different ways to do this. We tried completely extracting text from images and putting kind of like little gray bubbles in place of where the text would be, but it just wasn't legible to some of our users. Some of the other things that I think about are vertical versus horizontal text orientation. And so, for example, when you rotate letters, it's it's pretty common in design practice now to, to rotate a word so that it's vertical. And in English, you would still read it left to right. But in, in Japanese, you would actually read it vertically top to bottom. And so you wouldn't want to rotate the characters 90 degree. And so there's tools in most modern browsers uh, called uh, writing mode. Um, and so you can use some of those CSS attributes to to really get into it. Yeah, that's very cool. And I, you learn very quickly the complexity of having not just one version, but you know, however many versions that you've localized into, multiplying that times all of your images, assets, and that sort of thing can be a huge mess. And like you said, a performance challenge too. So I think those things are really fascinating. And like you mentioned. It's not just the you know the interface times the language. There's things that happen within an interface, like what happens when you rotate all the devices out there. It's such a complex problem, but it seems like you guys have found a way to to be present and be local in all those different markets without kind of bringing your site to a halt. Mm-hmm. Robin, the other interesting thing about Shopify is all the things that you're doing to make your service understandable, lovable in market you also have to give to your customers because they're using your tool to then market to their customers. What are some of the things that you've discovered about how to be 
lovable and local that you then give to your customers so that they can do the same. Mm-hmm. So we just launched a new, some of the like key products that we offer ourselves, we've started building tooling for our merchants. So um, our merchants can take and get their their site translated within the the admin now, which is a pretty cool feature to have. And I mean, it's you can have a paid version of the translations or you can have a free version of the translations, but you can still get translations within the product. Cross-border selling is really popular in Asia. So we have lots of users that will sell from China into North America or in Europe and those kinds of places um, or within just Asia in general. And so that the, the direct-to-consumer um, trend that's been building over the last few years has really, we've seen this taken off in such a big way. And you can you can see it, right? Like folks are businesses are selling products within Instagram and Facebook stores um, and within their own stores and owning their own brand really is the the crux of that. So awesome. So coming back out to you a little bit more, I, I'm sure everybody would love to have someone like you on their team, someone that knows you know all the stuff that you've learned and has all of your experience, but that's not possible. And a lot of companies would say, Okay, I understand the theory of how Shopify or a company that size did this, but I'm not them. I'm not that big. I don't have the same people or resources. So, you know, if you were, you know, starting with a team of three people, let's say, that you you had budget to go and take your technology into new markets and you could hire three people to help you do that. What do you think those, you know, first one, two, and three hires should be to start figuring out the how how to be present in a good way all over the world? I mean, it definitely depends on where where you want to be expanding. So let's let's fast forward and say that we're not just going to be serving a product that's in an English-only market, and we're going to be expanding outside of places like the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and diving into some of those tougher markets. I think having strong engineering leadership is really, really important. Having somebody that can be at the helm of the international team that can really drive the vision and ask those hard questions, right? You need to, you need to find a way to have those, those constructive, but difficult conversations uh, with folks and then really getting your content localization practice in place. Right. I think those were, I think those were three of the key, the key pillars for us. If I could expand that into something else, I would, if I could have a new, a new like tripod in every single market, I would have someone in, I would probably have like a four, four person group at the minimum or a five person group at the minimum. So our, our partner ecosystem is huge to Shopify success. And it really is the, the flywheel that, that drives the, the business. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I look at that, I think about how can we have in community engagement in addition to really amazing developer tooling that's in-house, an incredible user experience, really good content localization folks, and then another in, in-country leader that is helping drive the vision of what the product should be looking like in those markets. Those are probably the five really crucial roles. And then if I could add into that, it'd be marketers that are going to a marketer that can be kind of really diverse right the the thing about expanding into these new markets is if you are if you're looking at it like a startup you want folks that are a swiss army knife that have multiple skills that can that can bring that to but still have a specialization in some aspect 
Great answer. Super helpful. I, I love to ask people that question because I think everybody's answer is shaped by their own experience and the companies that they've been part of. But what I heard in common with what your you your answer was and a lot of other folks I really respect is that you need somebody who's asking the right questions and sort of looking at the whole problem as kind of a very first or very early hire before you start getting, you know, market-specific hiring going on. I think that's um, definitely something that resonates. In terms of other resources that might be out there for companies that are about to go into their first set of international markets and they want to learn more about doing the UX part right, anything out there that you would recommend as resources? Mm -hmm. So I really like the Adobe Design uh, localization docs. I think they did a really amazing job with those there's tons of blog posts out there that talk about um, pseudo-localization and localization in general and just some of those practices that are there. And then when I'm when I'm looking at other international UX stuff, like our Polaris docs have also really good documentation as it relates to international UX. So I think there's lots of resources out there. And it, in the beginning, it was really hard to find, but I'm, there's more and more that's coming out. There's a great book, actually. There's a couple great books that we read. One is called The Culture Map, which I thought was mm-hmm. fantastic. And then there's one more book. I just got to go grab it. I can't remember what the name is. It's called Cross-Cultural Design. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to say his name wrong. It's called... Uh, I'll link it. So yeah. <laughs> I'll I'm definitely link it. I won't, I won't <laughs> so try sorry. to pronounce it either. No, no problem. But no, this is great. I think whatever resources you found useful will be very helpful to other people too. And there's a lot out there. So it's good to know uh, where to start. Robin, maybe just to wrap up, I'd love to know, you know, what are you what have you taken away personally? How is what you have been working on in terms of localizing everything that Shopify does? What has that given you personally? Because I know that it's a big passion for you and you've learned so much and taken so much away from the places you've visited. And you also started the International Mastermind Network. So I know this is a big topic for you, but why is this important and what do you get from it? I mean, at, at the end of the day, it, it's really, it's understanding that we're all just people and we have more similarities than differences. So that's one big thing. And then selfishly, right? Shopify as a tool enables the everyday entrepreneur. And I think that realization that I had when I was just starting out my career in tech and being able to make my own rules and define my own game that I wanted to be playing at life that really was drive an underlying driver of why I love Shopify so much as a tool because it enables folks to build their dream life if they really want to. It's not easy. Being an entrepreneur is incredibly challenging and not something most people enjoy doing. But the fact that we can make everything easy and everything else possible I, I think it's a really powerful thing that we can do for folks around the globe. And so if we can help them really drive their their passions and drive their businesses in ways and make all of those really difficult parts easier, then I think that's a huge win for communities. Definitely huge playing field leveler when technology, access to technology, you know, all that e-commerce platform if you take that out of the equation and it's, and it's down to people's creativity and their execution, yeah, like you said, it's never going to be easy, but at least I think it makes it a lot more fair and a lot more interesting. Totally. There's a lot of disruption that happens when you give 
a normal person the tools they need to just drive change. Absolutely. Robin, this was great. I don't want to take up all your time, but any parting advice for a company that is thinking about going into all the markets that you've gone into or that Shopify has gone into? Any general advice? I mean, I think we talked about all the advice during the podcast, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah, we covered a lot. It's hard. Just just iterate. Just keep iterating. Um, eventually, you'll get it right. And the truth is in the data. The truth is in the data. I like The that. truth is in the data. <laughs> Awesome. Robin, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, I learned a lot, always do, when I talk to you about this sort of thing. And I hope everybody out there listening has learned just as much as I do from you. Thank you so much, Ramsey. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to the International Expansion Podcast. If you found this information helpful, I hope you'll subscribe and share this info with a friend or colleague. As a reminder, if you or your company is looking for guidance on your international expansion journey, from sizing and prioritizing markets to getting up to speed on local conditions, finding world-class talent, or building up your brand and revenue, please visit portofentrypartners.com and send us a note. Until next time, take care.